Hi, I'm Ryan Nostrayato, and this is Donuts in the Lounge, a podcast for educators. I've worked in public schools since 2001 as a school psychologist and as an administrator, and I've met a lot of educators over the years. They all have one thing in common. They want to create the best possible experience they can for students. But the truth is, that means something different to everyone, and there are some challenges along the way. And I'll be the first to say, we don't always have the solutions, but we definitely have each other and a chance to talk about our reality. Season one of Donuts in the Lounge is focused on how we use data in schools. Many of these stories are in a book I wrote, the K-12 Educator's Data Guidebook, Reimagining Practical Data Use in Schools. And if you join my email list, you'll get a discount code for 20% off the book, plus other free resources like podcast episode summaries. These are just for my email list friends as a thank you, because you know, we've got a good thing going on over there. So sign up at ryanestrayato.com. In this episode, I got to hang out with Graciela Flores, who is a teacher, content creator, and one of the first people I talked to while researching my new book, The K-12 Educator's Data Guidebook. Okay, question for y'all in the lounge. Do you ever wish someone with lots of experience in the classroom would open up their bag of tricks and talk to you about how they work? If that's you, you'll want to settle in and check this out. It's like a mini workshop on a couple of topics, dual immersion instruction and practical data use, whether you teach in a dual immersion classroom or not. So grab a coffee and your favorite donut and let's go deep on dual immersion and data use with Graciela Flores. Enjoy the show. Graciela Flores, welcome to Donuts in the Lounge. How are you? I'm good, Ryan. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Oh my God, I am so excited. We were getting warmed up uh, just talking before we hit record, and I was saying that I'm always excited and also nervous to have teachers on the show because in a lot of ways, y'all are who I'm writing for, and at the same time, uh, just you know, to be have some real talk about this. I haven't been, I haven't worked. I work at the county office of ed, so I haven't worked in a school in like a lot of years now. Um, so I always get a little nervous about this. So I'm, I'm happy that you're here, though. So thank you for coming. Of course, and I'm happy to share my experiences, my stories that um, that I, you know, I I share constantly every day with you know with my coworkers with um my students and i'm and i'm just happy to share this with you today so thank you you're welcome i'm happy too i can't wait we're gonna jump into in a little bit we're gonna jump into uh how you got into uh teaching and education uh i also want to talk about um some really cool creative work that you're doing but first we have to talk about a really important question which is this is a show called donuts in the lounge and i need to know do you have a favorite donut You know what? I I have two young girls and they just absolutely love um, getting donuts. Um, and they really appreciate this about me because <laughs> I'm very simple and I go straight for the, the glazed donuts or anything that has cinnamon, like the sugar cinnamon donuts are, are good. So every time we bring donuts home, uh, I eat those, you know, the, those simple donuts um, glazed or sugar cinnamon. And, and they appreciate this because they're left with all the, you know, the donuts that have chocolate sprinkles or any filled donuts that, you know, they're the fun ones. Yeah. 
Oh, that's really I'm interesting. Not very, I'm not a fan though. Yeah, so they, so your kids are, um, they, they appreciate the fact that they don't have to be bothered with the, uh, <laughs> with like the glaze. They, what is left over are the more like complicated and creative ones. Yes. Okay. Yes. They, like, okay, mom, you can have them, you know, the simple ones and we'll, we'll take the, the fun yeah. ones, the complicated ones. I don't, so, yeah. you know, it's funny. I've asked this question a couple of times now. It's a fairly new question for the podcast, but I have noticed a pattern. We'll see if the pattern holds up. <laughs> um, that people are kind of, they tend to be apologetic for liking the glazed donuts. Like, it's almost like they, people feel compelled to want something to like, to have a favorite donut that is the, one of the more creative ones. But people are just, you know, they'll say stuff like, well, I'm kind of boring. I like the glazed donuts. But from my point of view, I'm like, but that's like the most classic, that's one of those classic donuts. Like, why do we have to apologize for that? It's a great donut. Right. Right. And I think, I know you go from a child eating like those, the, the more color it has, the more sprinkle it has to, oh, you know, I just want, I just want a glazed donut. Or yeah. I just want a sugar donut. Yeah. I think that's why, maybe that's why people apologize, but no, that. That's my kind of donut. Well, you know what? I, uh, I appreciate it. What, do you have coffee with it? Are you a coffee drinker? Yes, I am a hundred percent coffee drinker. I will drink two or three coffees a day and I can, I love having conversations, especially I'm a brunch person. So I can, I can sit down and just sip on coffee and just talk away with my friends. The hard part, Ryan, during the pandemic when we were wearing masks i would come home every day and just have my coffee filled like i didn't i couldn't finish my coffee because even though you could you know you could pull down your mask and, and drink your coffee it was just so you know harder to or easy you know it it wasn't as easy to just sip a coffee as you know you were walking by or, or walking around the classroom so that was a challenge during during the pandemic when, yeah. you know, we were wearing yeah. masks in the classroom. Now I'm just happy because, you know, I have, I'll have my, my coffee cup in on the side and, you know, I'll just take a sip here and there and I won't have to worry about, you know, pulling down my mask and like, Oh, let me drink my coffee really quick. But yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. Like it was, um, there was, uh, there was just more like friction in the way, like less access to, uh, to, to get into the coffee. Uh, and it always got like a little awkward too, because you would just show, and I'm just like, I don't, do I like take the mask all the way off? <laughs> I know. And it was, you know, and, and kids would, you know, at the, the beginning um, part of the pandemic, it was, it was strange to pull down your mask to, you know, drink or drink water or, you know, it was, it was very strange to see that part of your face. Yeah. Um, now everyone's excited to, you know. Most kids, you know, are not wearing Mori ma masks yeah. because it's an option now. Yep. But, um, but yeah. Okay. So I got some questions for you just about like how you got to where you are. Cause I know you've got a lot of experience and I know you, you, you teach in very specialized and creative ways. And I just want to start there. Like, how did you get into teaching? You know, I, I think about this question and there's actually two parts to, to this question. Um, there the first part of it is I, I, I didn't realize I was, I wanted to be a teacher, a teacher until I, I was in college. And so I, I remember, I remember I was, um, I was in college taking just my general classes and I knew I was heading that direction. I knew I was, you know, I was taking the education classes and I, I knew I had to get an education because that was the right thing at that time. 
but I didn't know um, my purpose. I didn't know my, I didn't know my, my why I, I just was heading that direction. So at that time I had, I was tutoring at um, a middle school and at an elementary school, but I started, you know, I was at that time, I was a 20 year old student and I was, I started noticing, you know, um, several things, several things. And so, um, most of the schools that I, I worked at at that time, it was schools with, you know, high percentages of um, low-income families, immigrant families, English learners. And I started noticing that a lot of these students um, had, you know, they, they lost their primary language, their home language, or their native language, their, their parents' native language. And so I started asking, you know, just, think, just thinking and wondering why. Why is that happening with a lot of, you know, a lot of the students. And this was already in middle school. And I question it more because at that time I was at USD and I interacted with a lot of uh, international students. And I remember thinking, these international students know more than two languages. Like here I am, I, I like, I feel proud of knowing English and Spanish, but whoa, look at these international students. They know more than two languages and they're just so, so proud of it. And they, you know, they're coming to the States and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're continuing to learn. And so I would go back and forth from, you know, campus to, you know, my tutoring job. And I just started questioning that at that young age. And so I thought, you know, why is that happening? Why are the parents letting go of, you know, their, that native language? Do they think that English is better than, you know, their, their native language language? And, and so anyway, so those are the questions that I started thinking. And so then as, you know, as I continue my education, I bump into, um, which is where I where I'm at right now. I, I I'm a, a dual language immersion teacher, and so what that is the the purpose of dual language um, programs. They have three goals, so that way you know just get an idea of what you know these pro- programs do. There's three goals. So the first goal is to develop high levels of language proficiency and literacy in um, in both languages. So it's English, and then there's that that second um, option, whether it's Spanish, Mandarin. Um, French, there's different types of um, options. Students develop high levels of thinking, listening, speaking, reading, writing proficiency in both languages. So you're treating both languages the same, equal. Um, and then, and then you talk, and then, you know, the second goal of this program is you're, um, you're making sure that they're, you're monitoring, right? You're monitoring, you're looking at data, you're making sure that these students are achieving that high academic um, goals. And, um, and currently, you know, we have all these programs in English and in Spanish, in my case, where you can, you know, monitor and make sure that, you know, you're showing parents, you're showing that data that here, you know, this is where your child is at. And then that third goal of, of, um, dual immersion programs is that appreciation of understanding of, you know, diverse cultures. And so I bump into this idea of dual immersion um, later on in my teaching career, at the beginning of my teaching, in my teaching career, which was my, my very first year, actually, um, my very first job was um, a dual immersion classroom. And that was like, that was the reason why, you know, 
I, I began um, wanting to be in the classroom. I wanted, I wanted to make sure that whether, you know, I connected with one family, a classroom, a school, but I, I, I wanted to be in a classroom where I, I would let families know that you can treat both languages at the same level. You don't have to let go um, your native language. And so now in the program that we have, we have English only parents who are asking, um, going to schools and they're being, you know, that they, they have lottery systems now because everyone wants to be in a dual language program. So we have English only parents who want, you know, their children to be in these programs. Um, and, and so that, that was kind of like the beginning of like my, 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 my passion. And, and, and that's where it started. That's the first part. That's part one, yeah, part, part, <laughs> part one of your story. One of the things that stuck out to me about, uh, about you, how you discover this part of your path is that you, you saw something outside of your job in education that sparked your interest, which was the story of the, the international students who, um, in a sense, weren't picking between one of the languages. Like they had both; they both played a part in in their lives, and that and it's really interesting to me that that was a thing that inspired you, and then you brought that into your education job. Here's my question: Is when was the moment when you started to realize that uh, uh, that you could make that happen for kids in schools, um, and it was a thing that you could actually do as a teacher? That is to say, teach in a way that values both a language. When, when, when was that moment? I think when I, when I realized that there was such a thing, there was a program that we, it, the, the, the San Diego state of California here in the United States, we actually had a program that offered parents, there's option for parents. And at that time, um, I, as a young student, I, I didn't know if there were such thing as, you know, as that, as, as that option. I didn't know, you know, in middle school, they had, um, some of the elementary school teacher. And so at that time I didn't know, I, I was just going to work and I was just tutoring students, but at, I, I realized, so a couple of years later, as I was finishing my, my education, I realized I bump into this program and I, and I think, whoa, there is such thing as a program where students can learn in two languages. And I thought that there wasn't. And I think that parents, especially when, um, when you have, when you're working in, you know, in title one schools, low income families, and they're not getting the, 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 the information. And I feel like I, I kind of experienced that too, as a, you know, my, my family, my, my parents came to the States as, you know, they're, they're immigrants. And so they didn't, they knew they just wanted me to learn Spanish and they wanted me to keep their, you know, uh, my native language. And so I was able to learn both languages, um, but they didn't know how to do it. They just knew they, they wanted me to do that. And, and um, I, I thank them for, I think my family for, for that. I just, I, I was, I feel like my questioning at that time was where it sparked my, my, uh, my passion. And that's when, when I realized that, whoa, there are programs out there and parents do have options 
where, you know, you can, if your home school doesn't offer dual immersion, you can actually apply for a zone transfer and say, you know, I want my child to be, you know, in dual immersion, in a dual immersion school. So that's, I think that's where it started. Is there a way that, like when we, well, so to backtrack, we, uh, I first met you when I was researching for my book, the K-12 Educators Data Guidebook, uh, and we spoke on the phone and uh, when we talked, I, you had shared some of the ways that you use data in schools, which uh, which I'd like to dig into because one curiosity I have is, are there features to teaching a dual immersion class that require you to use data in in unique ways or is it is it the opposite, which is like good data use is sort of good data use regardless of the format of the instructional type? In, I feel that data will, will, will guide your instruction, whether it's um, English or Spanish, whether, you know, whether, whether you're in a dual immersion program or, um, or in an English only classroom. So the, the instruction is what's different. You will get data in Spanish, what students can um, perform in English and in Spanish. And then what's different is the, the instruction. The, what's different is the, are the standards what, um, that I have to make sure that I, I teach based on the results that I see in, in Spanish and, and in English. And so that, I think that's the big difference. But yeah, in, in all of the data that I that I see, I, I, I meet with my grade level. And when we're looking at it, it's, it's, it's very similar. I, you know, I get a printout and it's, you know, here's the English um, data and here's a, the Spanish data. The difference is how is it, what's my plan of action after this, you know, based on what I see from here. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because I know that there are folks who, when we say data in schools, sometimes the assumption is we are talking about end of year test scores. And certainly that's one kind of data. But as you know, there's a lot of other kinds, sometimes sources of data that we don't even think are sources of data. And so I want to mm -hmm. dig into what you just said there, because you said you got English data and then you've got the the Spanish related data, what is it that you are actually looking at when, when you say English and Spanish data? So one example is um, we have a, pro a reading program and they, we monitor students using Lexile, Lexile levels. And so at the beginning of the school year, they take a reading test and they receive um, a Lexile score. And so that tells us their reading level. And um, it gives us an idea of, you know, where they're at based on this, you know, table. If they're reading at a fifth grade level, um, you know, they, they should be, you know, they should be at this Lexel level. If they're not, um, I'll show parents, here's a table. This is where fifth grade, this is the fifth grade expectation. This is the um, end of the year expectation. This is how we're going to be monitoring throughout the year. And what... I print out every month, for example, or on a weekly basis or on a daily basis sometimes is how students are performing when they're taking these reading activities. And they're, so they're reading an article in English and in Spanish 
and they have eight questions. Um, and then these eight questions, um, they, they ask them, um, they focus around like main ideas because they're all informative, um, passages. So they, you know, they make sure that it's different types of questions, like main idea, inferences, vocabulary, um, anything on like context clues, um, and just making sure that students are going back to, to, you know, the text and referencing the text and, and taking that evidence. And, um, there's also, um, sections where they can actually type and respond to a prompt. So, but mostly the, the data that I print out is the, the one type of data. Cause there's another one that I do. It's, it's one of my favorite ones, but it's the actual writing that, you know, they're, they're, they're responding to, to a question based on what they just read. Say, say but, more about that. Is it, is, is that, how, say more about the writing part. So they've been using this. So the, my, my, I teach fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So they, they've been using this program since second grade. So they're pretty, they're pretty good at taking these activities where, you know, they read a text and, you know, they, 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 they can select the, the correct answer. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. They, they are reading these passages. They are, they're going through this and they're eliminating um, answers and they're, they're trying to select the best answer. But I feel like at this point in fifth grade, you know, they're, they're tired, you know, it's so I'm, I'm here. I am using, I've been using this program for so many years. I'm going to have to log in. I have to complete this activity. Is it's it part feeling of like a, feel like a little bit of a chore? Yeah. So it's like, is that real data? Is that truly their reading proficiency? And so that's why I say it's my favorite, the writing um, data, because every week I tell my students, okay, so after you're done with your article and you're, you know, and you answer your eight activities, I have a question for you. And that question is based on the, you know, the, I always, at once, once a week, I, I select, so they, they have options to select their own article. And then I select one article for them once a week. So I select an article and I give them a question. So that question, um, based on their responses, based on um, what they give me, it gives me so much information, Ryan, and that's why it's my favorite, because I can see, I can clearly see, and I just can scroll down because these are one paragraph, um, one paragraph responses. So I'm not reading multiple crafts. I'm not taking, you know, hours and hours looking at these, you know, these essays. I'm not doing that. I just want to, first of all, um, see if the student read the article. I want to see if the student is able to pull evidence from the text. I want to see if the student can actually go beyond just pulling evidence. I want to see the student can continue and explaining a detail in their own words, right? Um, So that's like the higher thinking. Can you pull in evidence and then continue that that explanation, that um, further details? And then, so that's the comprehension part, right? So that's giving me data. That's just, you know, I'm, I'm getting a report on a weekly basis and I'm, I'm getting, okay, so then this student is, um, I know that he's understanding main idea. I know that he's understanding inferences. So that's the one report. But this other writing part, it's giving me a clear understanding of, again, there was comprehension. But then the other part, it's also giving me 
it's that writing part too. So there's so much information just in one paragraph and I can quickly see what are the strengths and what are the needs in that one paragraph. I'm wondering if it took, if it took you a while to realize that you, some point you were going to need more than just like the standard eight questions. You're going to need something like that writing part. How long did it take you to, to realize that you, you need to like tack on this other piece of uh, data collection? It, it took me a couple of years, Ryan. I was actually, <laughs> I think my first couple of years of teaching, I was at a, you know, an amazing school and we had so much data and I, I, as a first year teacher, I felt, and that I think about it, I think I felt overwhelmed with so many reports. And in my mind at that time, I thought, oh, you know, I feel great. You know, like here I, I'm pulling my groups. I know that this, these group of students are, um, need, they need this. This other group of students need to make sure they work on, you know, sentence structure, this student, this other group of students, they need to work on um, vocabulary development. So then these reports were giving me specifically standard by standard because there were so many, there was so much um, testing, standardized testing and so many reports that I was receiving. I, as a first year teacher, I thought that's all, that was all I needed. And then I get to, um, years later, I get to a second school and it was, um, it was at that time where I remember going to a training and they talked about anecdotal notes and that's more of an informal, informal data, right? Like you are collecting data informally, right? And maybe as a first year teacher, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think back, maybe as a first year teacher, I did, I did collect data. But it wasn't as specific. It wasn't, it didn't have a purpose. And so even um, you could collect data, you know, you're walking around and you're just kind of jotting down your ideas. But anecdotal notes um, can be very specific and um, it has a purpose. And so at that time, I realized that, whoa, I can take my standardized um, tests and data, take my anecdotal notes and check to see if there's some kind of, they correlate, right? If there's some kind of connection. And it's, again, it's, it's that teacher observation. And it's that natural way of getting to know students. Because a student can't, how do I know that a student is just quickly selecting B versus when I'm in front of the student and ask uh, my student, why did you select B, why did you eliminate A? Talk to me. And so that is, has been so powerful the last couple of years for me when I'm meeting um, during my guided reading groups and the processing of why I eliminated A um, and just that going through and thinking out loud with students um, just transfers, right. When they're going off and working independently, because now, you know, when they are completing these activities on their own, I can see that, you know, on their, on their table that they're, you know, they have ABC, ABCD, and they're just, they're applying those, you know, those strategies that, you know, we just talked about in a small group. But again, I didn't know that as a first year teacher, right. here I was like, 
this is all I need. I yeah. don't need to do any work. Like the reports are doing the work for me, which are good. You know, don't get me wrong. Like I, I love, I love the colorful printouts and then, you know, here it is. But I, I, I feel like that, that observation and that one-on-one conversation with students or small group instruction gives you additional data that you might not get in these reports or gives you more uh, uh, just a different perspective of what you know what is truly happening this is i think this is so powerful i want to like dig into this a, a little bit more just a tad because well first of all for two reasons the first is isn't it amazing how much you know you get on in your career in education and you've you know you start getting good at things uh real specific things and it's amazing how many times when we reflect back where we learn how to get good at those things, it just kind of, it almost feels like sometimes we stumbled upon those solutions, right? We just sort of experimented and some things come into place. You know, you were saying earlier, you didn't know at the time, you didn't have language for like, you know, these techniques. You can talk about them now because you've got some experience. Um, and, you know, that's been, I feel like that's kind of been my story also, just with stuff that I've learned how to do. The second thing I wanted to, to bring up and clarify here uh, is, so I'm going to say this, and then you tell me if you, if, if, uh, you think I've, I've got this right. There's this whole idea of data being, um, you can use it to end a conversation, or you, and, or you can use it the way we should be using it, which is to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, this is an idea I got, I'll put a link in the, uh, notes, this article, um, from the William T. Grant Foundation website, um, that, uh, my friend Kara Jack- Jackson had, had shown me. And I really feel like that's a way we could look at the story that you're telling because you're starting with some quantitative data, you know, these, these mm-hmm. reports, from the system that your, you know, your kids are the assessment system your kids are using, and then uh, you it raises some questions for you that become the start of the conversation. And I think that question is, why did the students answer the way they did? With your professional judgment, you I think you you were, uh, you know, the story that you tell in the book is you had some theories. One of those theories was maybe they were rushing through the items, um, but another theory might be maybe they didn't actually know how to answer it. Um, right. And then you continue that conversation by by doing the anecdotal part, which was watching them in real life. And so it's like the data kind of brings you to that point because you can't watch everything in the classroom that mm-hmm. closely, but the data kind of narrows it down to, I know exactly the kind of activity, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is, reminds me of, I think this is the way you told the story is you knew exactly the kind of activity you would need to watch them do in order for you to understand where they were with that learning. And that is such a nuanced point to make about data use. Um, I just think we need to call it out because it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a routine. Yes. Especially for new teachers. Like I wish I had, I, I mentor teachers. I, 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 um, we were talking about it right before we were recording, but I, I, I'm a mentor for um, the induction program. So the, uh, the induction program, if you're a first year teacher, you have to complete this program as the first year and second year teacher. And so that 
that was something that's probably something that I, um, that I wish I had at the beginning. Cause I, at that time, I'm trying to remember, I mean, I went through the, you know, the, the, the induction program. I just, I'm trying to remember if I had someone mentoring me. Right. But I, I wish that was something that was, you know, that I, I had been introduced to because I, you know, I was going by the book and I was going by, you know, what the teacher's guide, we you know, was, and I was kind of going step by step and not, you know, thinking outside the box. And so. Do you think it's um, hard for like, if let, let's say, okay, this is a funny way to ask this question, but I think it could be interesting. Let's say like present day, you could go back in time and go to like first year teacher Gracie and say, I have a message for you about the way that you can do this. And then, and then you explained it to her. How well do you think at um, first year Gracie's level of experience, would she be able to grasp this powerful technique or would you have to, I don't know. It's always a question I have. Like, what do you think would happen there? I think, I think there's always, um, you always need to have, you have to go through that experience, right? right. Like I feel like someone can tell you, you know, can, t- can tell you all this great information, but I, I feel I, I still think you, you have to go through that experience. Yeah. The other thing I wish I had at the beginning of the, of the, of my teaching career was, and I had it, um, a couple of uh, years later was, um, um, a, an instructional, um, leader is what we call them or resource teacher coming into my classroom and kind of like co-teaching. And so, and, and looking at data together and, um, and talking about, you know, how my students were, you know, progressing and, and it's almost like, almost like that cycle, right? Like you're, you're looking at the strengths and needs and then, you know, what, what, you know, what you're doing, what you're doing well, what students are doing well, what is it that they still need? You know, what is it, what is it that, that you're going to do in your instruction, trying this, you know, in instruction testing, and then again, looking at that data again. Um, and I didn't, I, I had that later in, in the years. And so that's like another part too. Like I wish I had a mentor or a, a resource teacher kind of like guiding me as, and, and having these conversations and, and looking at, you know, these, these numbers and, and just kind of coming into my classroom and say, Hey, you know, let's try this. Or, you know, this, this is, um, this is going well, you know, let's continue to do this. And, but I feel, yeah, I feel like you still have to go through the experience right. and, and then later, you know, learn, like go through that whole process. Um, I think we might have, it's very possible that we have listeners who like you mentor other teachers. And so if there's anybody listening right now who mentors other teachers, what would be your rec- what would be your advice to them for a really simple thing they can teach their first year teachers about how to use data in a nuanced way? It's that that conversation, and I feel like you do have that conversation with your colleagues um, on a daily basis. But it's something very simple as creating a chart, looking at student work, simple as looking at, again, I, I, I'm going to go back to my favorite part of my data, looking at writing, because that gives you so much. 
Um, and it's something quick, creating a T-chart, strengths and needs. What, you know, what, what's, what are the trends in my classroom? What continues to happen in my classroom based on what I'm seeing? And what, what are the trends? What are something that my students currently need? So that way I can go back and teach, you know, as a whole group, reteach and then assess again. Um, and that's something very simple that I can create. But it's, it's, that, it's that conversation with that collaboration with, with your team. It's not just teaching. Teaching is not something that you do on your own. When you're, especially when you're looking at data, what are some trends happening in your classroom? Are those trends happening across the same grade level? Do the strengths and needs that are happening in your classroom, do we see those across the fifth grade classroom? And so that's a conversation too that as a first year teacher um, should be asked and should be, um, should be in that conversation during collaboration because that's when you can talk about the instruction. What can I do as a teacher to make sure that those needs are met for my students? That's really good advice. I think that's the whole T-chart thing I think is really cool because I'm thinking of it from the point of view of a school leader also. There's a really interesting data story there. You know, if a school leader is uh, having a conversation with staff or maybe having a conversation with upper management at the district or something and describing, <clears throat> you know, here, here are the... Uh, here are the trends that we see across, let's say, fifth grade about what our students have needed at the start of the year and then um, how that changed over the course of the year related to our instruction. And then a natural question might be, well, okay, but how do you know that? And then at that point, maybe the school leader had collected and analyzed T-charts from a number of teachers, counted the amount of times that a particular instructional need showed up, um, and that adds, that adds rigor to that conversation, you know, because sometimes yeah. it's like, it just adds a little bit of extra credibility to the story when you can point to some facts, not necessarily, I'm really big on this. You know, I don't think when you're telling a story, you have to point to every single fact. I think if you do that, people will go to sleep, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, one or two facts to illustrate that you had applied some logic and reasoning to the story that you're telling, which is what makes it compelling to begin with, can go a long way. And so the T-chart idea, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's really powerful for a lot of reasons, not only to the individual teacher for these, these um, instructional decisions that they make for, mm -hmm. you know, for that day or the next day, but when collected across a number of teachers for the story it tells about a school's instructional strategy, that's really, that's really powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Pre pretty cool. Yes. Yes. And I, I, and I feel like that's why it's powerful, especially for for first year, second year, you know, even, um, even experienced teachers. I mean, I always feel when I walk into a room and I, I have my, I have my, my data and I, and I'm noticing, this is what I'm noticing. These are the trends that I've noticed in my classroom. And then I have that conversation across with my colleagues. And as a teacher, I think, whoa, okay. It's not just me. Okay. So then what are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. 
And then even if I see, if in my classroom, my students' um, needs are different, and maybe in the other classroom, um, that teacher, her students' strengths are my students' needs, I can collaborate and say, hey, so tell me more. What are you doing to make sure that your students are meeting that standard? And so that's the collaboration. And that's what, that's what beginning um, teachers need, that collaboration. That, and, and that's every time we're, you know, we're planning for the beginning of the you know, school year. That's one of the things that we always talk about. Well, we need that. We need that, that collaboration. We need that, you know, that time to look at student work, look at data and have that conversation about what is it that you're doing um, and how can how, what can we what instructional strat, strategies can we use um, so that way we can go back to our classroom and, and apply those? I love that so much. I would imagine those collaborations would be really difficult to have if you didn't have these um, common conversation. You know, it's like the data becomes these common conversation starters, um, you know, because yes. you can sort of look at it. It's it is work that you produce. So in that sense, you know, it came from you. But but another way to look at it is you can put it at the center of the table and all kind of look at it as a team and provided that there's enough psychological safety um, and trust in each other, you can sort of distance yourself from it and, and have a, a look and allow interesting ideas to come up that maybe wouldn't have come up, you know, without, uh, without the data there. Um, I want to change gears here for a little bit because yeah. one of the things I love about your work is you're such a creative teacher uh, and, um, I, I know that you have this really great Instagram account. We'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes and in that account, there's all kinds of fun stuff, but in particular, you create a lot of teacher resources. Tell me about how that started. So it, it all started because when I first got my, my dual immersion position at, um, the school where I'm, I'm at, I, at that time, we hadn't adopted an official Spanish program for our school. And so we were still trying to pull resources from different, different places. We were trying to print out articles. We were trying to um, bring in, you know, books. Uh, and there weren't, there weren't any, any resources, especially for, for Spanish. So we were, the teachers were creating the, the, all the, the, the passages um, the worksheets, any kind of classroom resource was teacher created. And we had, the, we were in the middle of, of adopting a new program. And because we had, you know, you know, we were, we were teaching in a dual immersion school, that, that was a conversation that we needed a, a new program. We had resources, but they, the last, I, I, I can't remember what, the last time the district had adopted, you know, a new, a new program. And so that, that's where it, it started. So I, I would create resources for my students. And then I thought, wait a minute, if I'm cre if I'm using these resources for my students, maybe another teacher needs this. I was teaching second grade at that time. And so I started, I started creating these resources and I started uploading them into um, teachers pay teachers. And so that's, that's the, um, a website where a lot of us will go and 
these are teacher created resources. So I'm teaching, I'm teaching fifth grade right now. Sometimes I'll go into teachers pay teacher and, and look for maybe a quick graphic organizer or, you know, just something different that, you know, I, I, I might have a graphic organizer, but maybe someone created something different that might look different. Might be, I might have already a graphic organizer that's, you know, I've been using the last seven years, but maybe a teacher has it organized in a different way, or maybe um, there's so much in, in that website that again, these are teachers creating resources. And so that's, that's where it started. And especially in Spanish, right now we have, now we have, um, an adopted program where, you know, I can, I actually have, you know, articles in Spanish, high level, um, that, you know, the, the vocabulary in these articles and these passages are just amazing. So I'm not, you know, here, I'm not on, you know, online trying to create, you know, these, these passages. So we have that. I'm still creating to supplement what we currently have, especially for grammar. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, a lot of grammar that goes into the teaching. And so that's, that's what I do. Um, I, I try to make it fun so that students, uh, like what they're learning. I, I create songs. That's, that's, that's in my website. I create, um, a lot of the, again, a lot of the resources that I have, it's what I has worked in my classroom. And so I figured if it's worked in my classroom, it must work for someone, someone else. Can you share an example of, uh, of a resource that you made that, uh, that's really helped people? So my favorite one, and I think that's how I, I got so motivated to was, um, I, I go every year I go and present, it's called ATDLE. It's a national conference for dual immersion, two-way dual immersion programs, um, or teachers, educators, and I remember, was it probably seven years ago, I think, I created this song and it was the, I wrote, I wrote this song. So I was teaching the three rules of accent marks. So if you think about any type of grammar rule in any language, it's very dry, it's very straightforward. And in my mind, I was thinking, how am I going to teach my second graders that these three rules that if you look at them, it's like, I don't even as a native speaker, I don't even know why um, some words um, have an accent mark. Right. So I created, I wrote a song using the, using, I, I used um, a very famous uh, song. I just, you know, took out the words and, and just kind of combined it. And right. I just used it in my classroom. Right. So here I was. And so that's that's been my favorite one because my students learned the rules of um, putting an accent mark on, you know, these Spanish words using this, you know, this song. I still taught them the lesson, but this was just in, you know, in, in another part of the lesson where this song has all the different parts of the rules and and they just loved it. They loved it. And there's there's actually a little video, I think. Um, in my Instagram where, you know, the, the kids are, are singing. There's pop, I think there's another one where I'm presenting and I'm teaching, I'm, I'm teaching the, in the, in that, in that training, I'm teaching the, um, the audience how to, how to teach accent marks. And then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm playing that song as well. Yeah. So that's, 
that's just my favorite resource. I love that. That's really cool. I, you mentioned earlier that you uh, do some public speaking also uh, at conferences and, and stuff. And so I, I myself am particularly interested in public speaking. It's a lot of what I do in my job. And I'd love to hear about what it is that you talk about and where and uh, and what you've got coming up. So the conference in that's happening um, in the summer. So there's actually actually two two things I'm, I'm doing this, this summer. One of them is um, the one I just mentioned, ATDLE, and it's in, happening in Riverside. Mm-hmm. In this conference, um, I'm going to present, it, it's, um, for, they call it a first-year institute for, for teachers, beginning teachers. And so what they do is they, um, if you're a dual-language teacher or even um, a principal, you can come to this, you know, to my, tr- to my session and learn about how to begin your um, your program, or how to open up a fifth grade classroom as a dual language teacher. And so I'm just presenting everything about how to, how does the first day look like, how um, how I'm teaching reading, how I'm looking at data, um, how. Um, how students are, what kind of work they're, you know, they're, they're using or they're, they're working on on a daily basis and everything that entails about a fifth grade in, in a dual language perspective. And this, these are meant for first beginning um, educators and even administration are, you know, administrations are, administrators are coming into these sessions because they're probably opening up class um, schools and they want to see, you know, what should a dual language classroom look like. So that's one thing I'm going to be doing at this um, conference. The other one, I also do a lot of, um, um, I'm private consulting. There's, um, there's a training they invited. There was a group of, um, there's a district that contacted us, a group of teachers were heading to Florida and they just adopted the program that we use in Chula Vista and they're a dual language um, school as well. And so they, I mean, we're going to do a, a training on how we use this program specifically in our classroom. So that's, that's another, another part of, of what I do when I'm not in the classroom. So, uh, AT going back to the other one, ATDLE, I just looked it up. This is the association of two way and dual language education, ATDLE. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that conference. So if folks, this is for, thinking of a couple of audiences you mentioned, teachers opening up a dual language classroom. Uh, did, did I use the right terminology there? Yes. Okay, awesome. Uh, and administrators who have teachers who are uh, who are supporting teachers who are opening dual language classrooms. Good audiences for uh, for this talk you've got coming up. And that and that's only the first the first day. I mean, there's this is a national conference. Um, there's many sessions already, um, planned out. Uh, there's, I want to say it's three days. And if you go into the website, you can actually see what they have. And I, this conference, I have been going to this conference every single year because every single year I learn something different. And me as an experienced teacher, I, would recommend 100% for any educator 
who is working in any kind of dual language setting to look at this um, national conference. And if you're in San Diego County, I mean, Riverside is just close by. Yeah. That's as though this is a June 27th. It looks like uh, yes. when it starts. Right. Okay, cool. Super cool. All right. I got a couple of more questions uh, here for you to, uh, to close out our, our time together. Uh, the first is, this is a standard question I ask is something I'm interested in. What's a hobby that you do outside of your education job, but helps you in your education job? The, and, and I should say the weirder, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have, I, I, I have to do some form of exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have my I have my treadmill in my garage and I have my bike for my cycling classes. I have to do that to balance life, right? I, that helps me with my, with my teaching career because, you know, I, I feel better. But if, um, if this is, if, if you can call this a hobby, I think my favorite hobby and it does help me in my education career. And I think I maybe mentioned it. I don't know if you were recording, but every, every so often, every, maybe, maybe once a month, every now with the pandemic, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't really hard, but I have, I have a friend who um, I met in college at USD and I've known her, you know, that, that long, but we like to go and, and try different brunch places and talk she's in teaching she's in education as well and we just absolutely love to try new new restaurants she'll text me and say hey gracie there's you know this this place just opened up you know you want to try this let's go um and we talk about we talk about everything but including education right like she is not you know she's not in the classroom anymore she was a teacher but again, we come from two different perspectives and we talk about education and we talk about what, you know, she's seeing and what, you know, I continue to see in the classroom and that dialogue outside of work, right? And you're having great food is just my just favorite part. I totally relate to this. I, I just, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And I learn, I learn from her, um, so much. <laughs> I, I totally relate to this. I, I have a similar thing going on with, uh, you know, with some friends who are also in education or education adjacent. There's something about like, I just think with the way education jobs are, it's so, like the require, it's so hard to find the time where you can let your mind wander a little bit and have, it's so important for creativity, right? But it's very, it's tough unless you schedule in time into the education, you know, your sort of education workday um, to sit down and just explore interesting ideas, ask interesting questions, you know, let the brain make connections across different things that are, you know, you don't feel like there's a connection there, but you talk about it enough and then, then there is a connection. I wish that the workday had time for that. I understand why it doesn't. It's very, it's very busy and stressful, particularly now. I get that. Um, but I wonder if that's like where the brunch thing becomes mag- magic. Cause I do it's, and you're not the first one. I'm definitely not the first one. Like lots of folks say like, this is a thing that we do. 
Um, and so, yeah, t- totally relate. I do, I do have to ask, though, uh, because you and I live in the same county, what's a memorable brunch spot that you've been to recently? There is the last one I went, and I, I think I, since I have little ones, I don't know if you've ever been to Farmer and the Seahorse. It's no. up north. Okay. It's in um, Torrey Pines. Farmer and the Seahorse. Yeah, check it out. Okay. Farmer and the Seahorse. It's, it's hidden. It's not your typical um, little Italy, you know. Yeah. It's, it's hidden. It's in Torrey Pines. And I absolutely love this place. If you have family, if you have little ones, there's this whole area. It's open. So you have, there's an um, indoor, but even if you eat indoor, there's like these big glass doors that, you know, it's, it's open. And uh, the, just the environment, food is great. The coffee's great. We, I've taken my family. So I, I, I went, I, I went with my friend and then I took my family back because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Cause I can, you know, my four-year-old can run around here while I'm still drinking my coffee and my nine-year-old too can, you know, run around and it's great. I've, I've been there a couple of times, but yeah, that's my my favorite one, because usually on the weekends, you know, when I have my little ones, we try to find, you know, places too, because I, I do like to, you know, go out with my family to brunch, but it's really hard with little ones, especially, you know, you don't want to, especially with, with a four-year-old, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's hard. So sometimes, you know, pandemic was my favorite um, part because, you know, it was always takeout to right. go. Yes. We're, you know, having brunch at our, or, you know, lunch at our house. Yep. But now, you know, I, that's what I think about. Is it, you know, kid friendly and, and yes. So that's, that's a place. Well, I have two teenagers, but sometimes they act like they're little. So like (laughs) I I might actually, I I might actually go check that out. That seems pretty cool. Gracie, I want to make sure that the listeners know where to find your awesome resources that you make for teachers, uh, all of the places that you're going to be speaking and sharing your knowledge and also your uh, consulting work. Where can people find you online? So I am on Instagram, Maestra Flores. Okay. And I was, I was, we were talking about um, at the beginning, I think. My students know me as Maestra Flores. Maestra because in Latin America, they, um, that, that's the thing. They, your students call you as... Um, Maestra, teacher. That's why sometimes, you know, when you, when you do get um, students from Latin America, you know, they automatically say teacher. Oh, I love that. that, that that's where it comes from. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's why my students know me as Maestra Flores. And that's where you can find me, Maestra Flores on Instagram, Maestra Flores on um, Facebook. And you can email me as well, Maestra Flores one at gmail.com. The, the original Maestra Flores was already taken. You had to take, you have, like somebody got it to, oh, know, we're going to yes. have to, yeah. I know. Darn. They're, yeah, they're, I, even on Twitter. I, oh, I, no. mostly, mostly I post on, on Instagram and Facebook, but even on Twitter, um, I think that one was taken. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll definitely get all of that in the notes. Gracie, thank you so much for coming here and sharing all this with me. I can't wait to get this out to the listeners 
Um, and I can't wait to, uh, to see what you do next, both in your creative work and in your speaking and, and in your teaching. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, Ryan. I was, it was great sharing my stories. I, th- this is a first, this was a first for me and I really, really enjoy, you know, enjoy uh, sharing my little, little parts of my experience and stories with you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, Gracie, I hope you can come back and uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, 100%. Bye-bye. Bye.